And so this morning we do get to dive into Psalm 80. And again, we're doing this series, uh, this journey through the Psalms, Heaven and Ordinary Time, because we recognize that the Psalms are this incredible resource of, of poems and words and thoughts and prayers that really do speak to the width and depth of the emotions that we feel. And we've covered some serious uh, emotions like fear and loneliness and, uh, but, and impatience, but also things like joy and hope and others. And so there's just this incredible sense of um, gratitude for this book that's, that gives us words that we need in seasons like that we're in right now. And so Psalm 80, there's not a lot of context um, in this psalm, but theologians and commentators believe that this psalm uh, takes place around the time that Jeremiah wrote the book Lamentations, around 586 BC. Um, and that is when uh, the, the, the tribes of the, uh, the two, uh, Israel had been divided into, into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. And um, they were on the verge of collapse. The northern kingdom was on the verge of the collapse by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were about to... Um, They'd already crossed into the borders and they were taken over and the people of God understood, the Israelites understood what was happening. First of all, the nation was divided. Second, there was impending destruction from an outside force. Um, there was stories and fears about imprisonment, stories and fears around enslavement. Um, there was fear and terror and hopelessness. There was a loss of confidence, a loss of security, a loss of peace. And all of those emotions, I think, are emotions that we can relate to right now in the, in the world that we find ourselves in. And so I think reading Psalm 80 is a perfect and fitting uh, chapter for us to read today uh, as it deals with the subject of desperation. But before we get into that, um, earlier this week, I read uh, an interview with a man named Daniel Thorson. And uh, Daniel Thorson was this young man who lives out on the East Coast. And uh, at the beginning of February, uh, Daniel set out um, to uh, the, the back country of Vermont to a remote cabin with no electricity for a 75-day silent meditative retreat. And so Daniel walked out into the woods at the beginning of February. And he walked out sometime in mid-May, and he walked out with, I mean, he had no contact with the outside world. Walked back to his car, plugged his phone in, and his first tweet that he said was, I'm back from 75 days of silence. Did I miss anything? Like, he had no idea what had happened in the world in the three and a half months that he was gone. He comes back into society, and he's totally overwhelmed with what's going on. He shows like he goes to the grocery store and everybody's wearing masks. And he said he felt like he was in a science fiction movie. See, we all had days and weeks to get into this. He jumped into the deep end all at once and he was super freaked out all about it. He struggled um, with all kinds of basic things. Um, he said um, he was um, overwhelmed um, with uh, being so unaware of quarantine and uh, a lack of awareness of an epidemic. He was unaware of civil unrest. He was unaware of political strife. He was unaware of marches. He was, un he was unaware of the, he was unaware of killer wasps or bees or whatever it was. Like he was unaware of all of it. And this is the world that he woke back up to. And he said something at the end of the inter interview that is maybe so obvious, but saying it as somebody a little bit from the outside, say it in, there was just this reassurance in me. He said this, whatever happened these past three months, this truly is one of the most significant events in modern history. And of course, it's like, well, of course it is. But, but I think him saying it really just reinforced that these are just unprecedented times. And the same emotions 
that God's people 25, 2,600 years ago were experiencing a divided nation and pending destruction from an outside force. The narrative and story of imprisonment, the narrative and story of enslavement, the reality of fear and terror and hopelessness, a loss of confidence, a loss of security, a loss of peace, all of that 2,600 years, years ago is exactly where we're at today. So reading Psalm 80 has been helpful to me. It's been hopeful. It's given me some words. It's given me some language. And better yet, it's given me a prayer for a time of desperation. And Psalm 80 is a psalm of desperation. And as I've studied and read and prayed through this, I found this prayer that I think is so important to us. And, and, and I'm just being vulnerable as well. And desperation has been an emotion that I've been experiencing for 17 weeks. But to acknowledge something like desperation, that's really weighty. It's really heavy. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable, right? Because it's vulnerable. Um, it wasn't that long ago, maybe about a year ago, I went back and reread Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. I don't know if anybody has read that book, uh, but it is an encouraging book, even in the season. But one of the lines in it that I underlined says this, but God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where, we'll be, where we will be in trouble if he does not come through. God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he does not come through. And I feel like that's a lot of the desperation that I'm feeling is that I'm taking steps and entering space and, and, and interacting in an environment that is really hard and really weighty and really uncomfortable and really disturbing and really, um, and, and leading me to a place of, of need and desperation. Psalm 80 to me has just been this help um, the last couple of weeks in reading this. And so what I want to do today is I just want to go ahead and take just a few minutes and read through Psalm 80. And I'll make a few uh, remarks along the way, trying to understand the story. There's a little bit of history. There's two motifs. There's the motif of, um, of the shepherd and the sheep, and there's a motif of the gardener um, and, and, uh, and, the, and a vineyard. And so I just want to make some commentary so we kind of understand how this, uh, this psalm is moving. And then I want to share something at the end that I think has been kind of the aha moment for me as I studied this. This is 19 verses. Um, which is, you know, kind of a medium length psalm. But in the 19 verses, there are 14 imperative command verbs. That's a lot. And anytime one uses the command verb, we're talking imperatives are like, like, this must happen, you must do, thus saith the Lord. And there's a weight and gravitas to using the command verb. Um, there's, a, there's a weight behind it. And the psalmist here, the poet, using 14 of them in 19 verses is trying to make a point to the reader of the weight and gravitas of this poem. And there is, a, there is a profundity in this poem and it is being marked by the use of this language of these verbs. And so to help us, I've, uh, as we read it, you'll see them in red. Um, and, I, and there's 14 of them. And as we go through and we'll start uh, and just read one through three, and I've just made all of the command verbs red as we read this. So let's read, it says this. Please listen, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph's descendants like a flock, O God, enthroned above the cherubim, display your radiant glory. To Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, show us your mighty power. Come to rescue us. 
Turn us against, uh, again to yourself, O oh God. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. And so it begins with the first verb, which is listen. And it's not, God, I'm telling you, I'm the, I'm the owner of the command. It's a causal verb that says, God, cause yourself to listen to my prayer. Then he goes into this motif around, uh, around the shepherd. He refers himself to uh, the psalmist calls God, O shepherd of Israel. Now, um, people would often refer to their kings as their shepherd. So this is common language. But it's so beautiful, too, that, O shepherd of Israel, remember what Jesus says in John 11, I am the good shepherd, and I have come for my sheep. And so there is a movement here, even in the beginning of the Psalms, that's pointing to something grand. And he says, you who lead Joseph's descendants like a flock, if you know the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, his life was in crisis. Talk about division and talk about uh, crisis and pain and turmoil and a lack of confidence, lack of trust. That man's life was upside down. But God showed up in the midst of that crisis, in in the midst of the desperation and led him and his family. And two of his children, Ephraim and Manasseh, are listed in verse two. And Benjamin is another uh, member of Joseph's family. So he's saying, you um, who have led God's people, display your glory amongst uh, the angels. And so on the Ark of the Covenant, at the the head of the Ark of the Covenant, were these these, like uh, figurine statues of angels. And they believe that God's presence resided in the Ark and shone through that space between these cherubim. And so he is looking back to the Exodus. He is looking back to God's leading. He's looking back where God's glory showed up and displayed itself in beautiful glory and radiance. And then he says to you, these three tribes, show us your mighty power, come and rescue us. And then that third verse says, turn us again to yourself and shine down upon us so that we can be saved. Now that that, that verse is going to repeat itself three times in this passage. God, cause yourself to turn to me. Make your face shine on me like the glory on the Ark of the Covenant so that I will be saved. Turn to me, shine on me for my salvation. That is the prayer of a desperate person. That is the prayer of a desperate person. Turn to me, shine on me, save me. Turn to me, shine on me, save me. Let's keep reading. We'll do verse four through seven. Uh, Verse four through seven says this. Oh, Lord God of heaven's armies, how long will you be angry with our prayers? You have fed us with sorrow and made us drink tears by the bucketful. You have made us the scorn of neighboring nations. Our enemies treat us as a joke. So turn us again to yourself, oh God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. So again, that prayer, turn to me, shine down on me save me, shows up again. So I sat and thought about this, how long will you be angry at our prayers? I thought that is a, that's a harsh statement that God would be angry at our prayers. What could our prayers look like that would make God angry at us? And I just started praying through God, what, what prayers do I pray that um, you, um, that's not what you're asking out of me. That's not what you're calling out of me. And I just began to think of prayers that are just super selfish. They're full of pride. They're full of arrogance. They're full of like that self-centered idea, which I think would be great for the world versus what God's intention in the world is going to be. 
I think, I think prayers that um, create distance with us and the Father and the Son and the Spirit is when uh, my prayers are about what I want and not what I need. Prayers of, when we pray something that we want, it's not out of desperation. When we pray something out of need, now that's desperation. Now, I don't know exactly what these prayers are. The psalmist doesn't tell us. But I think it's pretty clear that they're experiencing God um, to be distant from them. I think they're feeling alone and overwhelmed, and now they're feeling mocked. They're wandering around in the dark on the verge of collapse. And the desperate plea is that something wholly better would show up, something more than they can even dream of. And the prayer repeats itself, turn yourself to me. Shine on me so I can be saved. And I think hidden within this little section of the psalm is repentance. I think there's an acknowledgement that what they've been doing on their, by their own selfish volition have found themselves distant from God. So the prayer is to um, repent of that and forgive of that and have God cause himself to turn to them so they can be saved. Let's keep reading, verse eight. Uh, that now we go into from the motif of, of shepherds uh, to the motif of uh, gardening. He says this, and we'll read verse eight through 11. You brought us from Egypt like a grapevine and you drove away the pagan nations and transplanted us into your land. You cleared the ground for us and we took root and filled the land. Our shade covered the mountains. Our branches covered the mighty cedars. We spread our branches west to the Mediterranean Sea. Our shoots spread east to the Euphrates River. Now, even just before we go on to verse 12, all he's saying is he's saying, remember the story of Israel marching out of Egypt and you took us like a branch. You, you ripped it out of our enslavement to Pharaoh and you made a path for us and you walked us. Uh, 40 years through the wilderness, and but you planted us in the, uh, in the promised land, and we grew and we flourished. And that's sort of the motif that's changing. Let's look at verse 12, uh, 12 through 15. But now, why have you broken down our walls so that all who pass by might steal our fruit? The wild boar from the forest devours it, and the, and the wild animals feed on it. Come back, we beg you. O God of heaven's armies, look down from heaven and see our plight. Take care of this grapevine that you yourself has planted, this son that you have raised for yourself. Now, there's a lot here, but just to be kind of quick here, um, it, it's really, it's, again, the imagery of Exodus, walking out of slavery, the journey to the promised land. But now the journey, now that they're in the promised land, things are not going well. There is division within their family. There's division within their nation. There is strife. There is impending forces. They're, they're on the verge of collapse from a foreign enemy. Uh, there is fear. There is desolation. There is hurt. There is pain. There is stories of enslavement and stories of imprisonment and stories of pain that are, that, that are running rampant through the community. And he's saying, in, in the midst of all this, our enemies have made their way into our camp. Our walls have been torn down. Our fruit is being eaten. The grapes that we grew are being trampled. The wild beasts are devouring on it. There's this, there's this desperation, this plea. And so here comes the plea. Come back, we beg you. Now the word for come back here is to turn. It's the same word that's being used in this prayer. Turn to us. It's the word shuv. And he's saying, God, please, you must come back. We beg you. You see, the prayer of a desperate person always is, I beg you. I beg you. I beg you says, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this on my own. I need someone else to intervene. I need help. I can't do this. I beg you. And then he says, come back, look down, see our misery, and take care of the grapevine. 
The word for take care um, literally means to visit or to tend to. Now we use it in language like we need you to come take care, but it, it's what he's saying is this, is that God, you live in the heavens. He's re referring to him as God of heaven's army. So there's this idea of God in the heavens, but he's saying, God, your distance, I, we actually need your nearness. We need you to come close. We need you to come take care and tend to the grapevine, which is us, which is broken and hurting and in need of desperate love and healing and care. We need you to come close to us. We need you to tend to us. We need you to be the gardener. We need you to be the gardener. And we need you to tend to the brokenness of the branch. Let's read verse 16 through the end. And he continues this motif. For we are chopped up and burned by our enemies. And may they perish at the sight of your frown. Strengthen the man you love, the son of your choice. Then we will never abandon you again. Revive us so we can call on your name once more. Turn us again to yourself, O Lord, of, uh, God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us, and only then will we be saved. And for the third time, there's the repetition of that prayer. And so the motif um, of, of the gardening continues, and it continues to talk about how the plant is being, uh, is being devoured by the enemy. But then it says this, but God, you are the gardener. You are the planter. You are the one who visits and nurtures and tends to the needs. So raise up the son of your choice. Now, this is interesting language. Commentators uh, debate on who the son is here. Some think it's just the re restoration of Israel. But a lot of the passages in the Old Testament are what's called pro-Davidic, meaning they're pro-King David. And so there's this idea that a king would rise up, a good king, a true king, that would be a king and a savior to his people. And so many commentators believe that what, what uh, the psalmist is writing about here is that the son of choice um, that is going to rise up, that's going to rise up, is King David, this longing for, um, for royalty and for rescue and for salvation. But man, I cannot get past this motif of the gardener. It led me to reading John chapter 15. As I studied this, I went right to John 15. Not only does Jesus say in John 11, I am the good shepherd, but Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Remain in me and I will remain in you for no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is my father's glory and for my father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves as my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And so this motif is going to continue through David all the way into Jesus. For Jesus is a good shepherd, and Jesus is the vine. And I just love this sense of hope that shows up here. This sense of hope that out of the rubble is going to come something so good and so awesome and so helpful and hopeful. And that is going to be restoration. And it's going to come through a son being raised up, a man of love, a son of the choice of God, one who will rise up and restore and revive the tired and heal the wounded and tend to the broken. And in this one that rises up, they will find what they need, the essential requirement, salvation. And the only way this happens through the desperate plea is turn to me, make your face shine up down upon me. And only then will I be saved. This is a prayer of a desperate, desperate person. And so as I read this and reflected on it, 
there are 14 command verbs. Now I've talked before about the number seven and the number seven in antiquity, that is for you, Ken Strahl, uh, uh, the, uh, the number seven in antiquity um, is the completion of a cycle. Seven means full or complete or perfect. But when you compound it seven plus seven to make 14, you're compounding the truth and compounding the fullness and compounding its perfection. This is not by random choice. The psalmist put the 14 in there to talk about the weight and profundity of the fullness and perfection and completion of this prayer. And of the 14, seven of them are only two verbs, shuv to turn and restore and or uh, to shine. So seven of them are used one time and seven of them are used more than one time. To return and to shine, to return and to shine, to return and to shine. This is the order and prayer of a desperate person. Turn yourself to me, God, so I can turn to you. Shine your face on me, God, so I can be saved. Turn to me, God, so I can turn to you. Shine your face on me so I can be saved. This is the prayer of a desperate person. And I think right now, this prayer matters. It matters. Because I am at the end of my rope, at the end of my strength, at the end of my wits, at the end. I'm at the end every day. And I can't fix any of this. I can't fix any of this. And so the prayer of a desperate person is this. God, Jesus, Spirit, cause yourself to turn to me so I can turn to you. Shine your face upon me so I can be saved. I think the poet nails it. I think the poet gives us the words that we need in this season. The answer to our desperate cries is right here. And David was a good king. But God had something so much more for us. And in the fullness of time, the Son of God, Jesus, came near to visit, to tend to the needs of the desperate, to move into the neighborhood, to save. Do you know when it says the word save, uh, I think three or four times in this, in order to be saved, the Jewish word for saved is the word Yeshua, which is where we get the word Joshua, which is where we get the word Jesus. Jesus showed up to save. And when he came, he said some radical things. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Just as you trust in God, trust also in me. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you a forever rest. I am the vine and you are the branches, he said. Remain in me and I will remain in you forever. For all those that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive them away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I shall not lose any that he has given me, but raise them all up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son shine on me, look at me, and allow me to look at you. And all those who look at the Son and believe in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on that day. This is the prayer and the promise. This is the prayer of a desperate person, and this is the fulfillment of a perfect, complete, and whole God. And so, maybe that should be our prayer right now. Maybe that should be the prayer of our desperation. That we would look to the Son. We would look to the Father. We would look to the Spirit. And we would acknowledge our need. 
and we would beg God, God, turn to me and cause me to turn to you. Cause your face to shine on me so that I can be saved. And there's so much on the work that Jesus is going to do in our life. And part of the desperation is saying, I can't do this on my own. I need you here. Psalm 80 is a prayer for the desperate. And if you're desperate and you're at the end of it, pray this prayer. Sit in this prayer. Make this prayer central to your breath as you wake up in the morning and as you go to bed. Turn to me. Shine on me. Save me. Turn to me. Shine on me. Save me. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord, we ask you, with as much humility that we can muster, cause yourself to turn to us so we can turn back to you. Cause your face to shine in radiant, beautiful glory so that we can be saved. May we look to Jesus, our God and our King and our Messiah, the one who came to save us, the one that came to tend to us in our desperate hour. May we turn to Jesus and may we repent of our sin that keeps us distant from you, God, and may we receive your forgiveness and may we find new life that only comes through you. God, this has to be done by you. It cannot be done by us. We are desperate and we beg. We are desperate and we beg. Come to us. Shine on us. Save us. And in Jesus' holy name, we say amen.